0: Well, a shocking move by tennis star
1: Naomi Osaka on Monday. She announced that she's withdrawing from the French Open,
0: and this comes after she was fined fifteen thousand dollars for skipping a news conference after her first match. Osaka had said last week she wouldn't participate in media events, citing mental health concerns. In a statement
2: on Twitter, you heard this in sports center guys, and this is a big story in, in, the, in the, really the world of sports, but just in the world in general and that's Naomi Osaka who announced her withdrawal from the French Open and this is she's number two ranked player and this kind of came out of you
0: know. world number two Naomi Osaka has withdrawn from the French Open citing ongoing concerns for her own mental health Osaka was fined $15,000 for not speaking with the media after her win on Sunday and said she wasn't going to participate in post-match news conferences Osaka said on Twitter quote the best thing for the." She said she made the decision because she wanted to preserve her mental health, and that had quite a negative repercussion, actually. Many players saying that speaking to the media, giving interviews is really part of your job. But Naomi, after her first match here at Holangarho, she did not speak to the media, she didn't give any interviews, and she paid a very heavy fine, $15,000.
2: I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. Naomi Osaka's announcement that she would skip the post-match press conferences at the French Open had already rocked the sports world, the tennis world, the sports journalism world. A bold move understood by many, befuddling to others. A four-time Grand Slam winner, just 23 years old, who in 2020 was the highest compensated female athlete in the world. Among the players to react quickly, Serena Williams.
0: I feel for Naomi. I feel like uh, I wish I could give her a hug because
1: I know what it's like.
2: NBC is one of the American broadcast outlets for the French Open. Mary Carrillo is one of their lead anchors and reporters.
1: Today, she has written again on social media. I'll just read parts of it. Hey, everyone. This isn't a situation I ever imagined or intended when I posted a few days ago. I think now the best thing for the tournament, the other players, and my well-being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. I never want it to be a distraction, and I accept that my timing was not ideal, and my message could have been clearer. More importantly, I would never trivialize mental health or use the term lightly. Here's the part that kills me. The truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the US Open in 2018. That's the famous final against Serena. And I have had a really hard time coping with that. Everyone knows, anyone that knows me knows I'm introverted. It goes on. She's apologizing to the tennis press and all the cool journalists who I may have hurt. I'm not a natural public speaker. I get huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's meeting.
2: John McEnroe, one of the great players from an era when the attention was not nearly as great on young athletes, is now one of the most celebrated television analysts. He had a difficult time putting
0: it into words. This is a truly shocking, shocking turn of events. I've got to say, I don't need, I don't. I'm not often speechless, but I got to say
3: right now This has gotten to a level that it's just a lose-lose for everyone. That's right.
1: That's exactly right, John.
2: John McEnroe and Mary Carrillo from NBC Sports. Jamel Hill, a former ESPN reporter and anchor who now does a podcast and writes for The Atlantic magazine, appeared this week with Mark Lamont Hill on Black Television Channel.
4: This is an example of uh, tennis bodies, because it wasn't just the French Open. People have to understand, the, the, after they find her for not appearing at her post-match press conferences following uh, her first win at the French Open before she withdrew, they put out a statement that was signed by officials from the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, and the Australian Open, all majors. So collectively in sports, they decided that they were going to show this woman of color where her place was and they really brought a bazooka to a rock fight. Okay, listen, she said she would take the fine and that for her own mental health, that she would rather not participate in these post-match press conferences. She was trying to protect her peace because Naomi has not done well at this tournament. And what she didn't probably want to do is answer thousands of questions about why she doesn't do well at this tournament. And as she said, uh, recently that she is shy awkward these press conferences uh, fill her with anxiety
2: Jamel hill on black television news on the black television channel So now that sets the stage for an examination into sports journalism and our role in this and in source reporter relationships, into access to the athletes, the mental health aspects, and more. I talked this week with two prominent journalists who are now college professors. Malcolm Moran spent many years at the New York Times, at the USA Today, and other great American journalism outlets. He is now the director of the Sports Capital Journalism program at IUPUI in Indianapolis. J.A. Adandi is a former reporter for ESPN for the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. He directs the Sports Journalism program at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism Media Integrated Marketing Communications.
5: I'll say one of the reactions I have is that the general reaction to this showed how, how disengaged and misinformed so many people are. So when Naomi Osaka announced that she was pulling out of the French Open, a lot of people said, blame the media and said, oh, well, this is your fault or, or sarcastically said, oh, good job, you guys, you got what you wanted. And this was never Naomi Osaka versus the media. This was a battle between Naomi Osaka and the organizers of first the French Open and then the rest of the grand slams once they all got together and put, put out that statement to saying she would be subject to disqualification if she didn't participate in the press conferences. But the media was never forcing anything on Naomi Osaka. She might've been uncomfortable in her interactions with the media but the media never forced anything on her. And if you noticed in her uh, announcement that she was withdrawing from the French Open, she actually apologized to the media. And she uh, mentioned that she found that there were some cool people in the media. So this was mischaracterized, and it was allowed to be mischaracterized, in part because the media doesn't have this central role. I think one of the things that empowered her that made her feel like she didn't need to have this interaction with the media is we've seen social media and, and other avenues that have that have allowed uh, athletes to bypass the media. But we also in this instance see, got an example of what happens when you don't have the media around to, to gather the information and to inform uh, in a centralized place, the, the, the populace. And, and that's, what we, that's what we're at risk of losing. And if, and if this were to continue, if we see this, this gap created and expanded uh, between, between the athletes and coaches and the media, we're going to have more of this misinformation with, with more severe consequences than the media's reputation being dis- dismerged.
0: Malcolm? Well and John, sadly, what we learned very quickly as uh, the Osaka scenario unfolded was that this really wasn't about appearing at post-match press conferences. this was about her mental health and her well-being and and that format became the the target of her concern but clearly there's a lot more to it than that um i i thought i mean having having grown up in queens not far from forest hills and not far from flushing meadows i mean one of the most fun things for me was to cover the u.s open every year and and i found that people that cover the majors, uh, if anything, are among the most deferential and polite in terms of the tone of post-match questions, and especially when matches are, are ending so late at night. And that in fact, she had been treated very well. I mean, she was an extremely sympathetic figure. The first time she won a major, under controversial circumstances when Serena had the issue at the end of the match and the crowd is booing during the award ceremony because they wanna see Serena. I mean, it had nothing to do with Naomi, but it put a young athlete in a very difficult and and unfair position and, and it was chronicled that way. And I think, I mean, I I would agree with J.A. that I think that contributed to the misunderstanding. She acknowledged in her statement that her timing could have been better. And, And I think part of what contributed to the problem was by waiting as long as she did, if there was a chance for some kind of accommodation to help her, I mean, you can't do that in four days. I mean, these events, either uh, under non pandemic circumstances, are all planned out months and months in advance. And so it, it was just a, a difficult thing all around. But the most important thing is her well being.
2: I think, anyway, sports is a little bit ahead of the game, hasn't it been in the questions of mental health? We've seen things posted. Um, certainly NBA players have been in, in front of this. So I think for people to misunderstand that part of it, I think, is even further uh, unfair because sports has done a probably not a great job. I know we all have a lot more to learn about it, but but it's been ahead of the game, you think?
0: Well, I would say so, and, and I would add, John, that having the platform to speak to a wide range of media representatives about a subject that used not too long ago was considered much too personal to discuss publicly has created a remarkable level of awareness for, for these kinds of issues. It's, it's much too easy to equate youth and success and financial gain with well-being. And I think the sports industry has taught us, whether it's in Naomi's case, whether it's Kevin Love's statements and and a number of other high profile athletes that have spoken about this, that the subject is much more complicated than that.
5: One thing that was interesting was again, in, in her second statement explaining her withdrawal, uh, she did discuss the the legacy of that 2018 US Open and the depression that she's been dealing with since then and the anxiety that she's had since then. And something that struck me a little while later was that that seems to be a more painful conversation and, and you're, you're delving deeper into your personal feelings um, than the type of questions that you face at a, at a post-match press conference. And it was a little bit ironic in that um, rather than doing the press conference, if, if she had just done the press conferences, maybe this doesn't come up. Maybe she doesn't feel the need to sue them. So I wonder in retrospect, would it have just been easier for her to have done the press conferences And in the process of explaining why she didn't do the press conferences and why she felt the need to pull out the French Open, she had to share this deeply personal moment with her and and everyone's wired differently. To me, it would be easier to deal with the press conference. I would be uncomfortable sharing such a personal detail, as Naomi Osaka said, and maybe she's wired differently. Maybe she's more comfortable. And as Malcolm described, the change, and as as you alluded to, John, that the the progress that we've made in sports, having these conversations, it might be weird that she's actually it's actually easier for her to discuss her 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 dealing with depression and to share that publicly than it is to actually face a question about her struggles on on the clay court surface in tennis.
0: Yeah, yeah I, don't, I, I mean, I, I, I agree completely, and I think that, that speaks to her sincerity, her authenticity. Um, I mean, there's so much to admire about her. I mean, the way that she used her platform last year as as a, uh, a source of social activism and 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 that very strong commitment. I mean, I I just think what we're seeing is very authentic. And yeah, she could have sat up there and given one-word answers and and just kind of gotten through it and left and not revealed any of this. And, and I, I think it. It's, even though it was a very difficult situation, that there's so much to be admired about her, and you know, obviously, we all hope she can work her way through this and and, and be able to help more people that are going through similar circumstances, whether it's pandemic-related or not.
2: It's important to to all of us, uh, including consumers and fans, to to hear from athletes, to hear from sources, to hear from people that they admire on on the field or whatever the arena is. How does does this spotlight then, J.A., you said it wasn't about the media, but how does this spotlight our access to athletes and, um, and and we need that access. We need to understand what happens at the end of a game. We need to understand what makes athletes tick so we can do our job fairly. W- what does this say about that access in 2021, if anything?
5: It, it's, it scared me that um, it, it showed how how ancillary the media is considered. So... Naomi Osaka said she couldn't do this because it, it wasn't conducive to her attempts to to compete and to try to win the U.S. Open, uh, the French Open, right? Um, well, crowds can be not conducive, especially, in, and she had to deal with it at a level previously unseen in tennis, the, the rowdy crowd at the U.S. Open and, and the booing after the match. That That's not healthy, that's not conducive to her, but we can't say, all right, not having the crowd isn't, isn't an option, but apparently, the athletes feel empowered to say, "Not dealing the media, um, that is an option. That that is in play." And um, so, yes, this, this felt like I think a, a number of journalists took this as an existential threat. <laughs> are, are, are we that disposable? Uh, and and you know, will 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 the the organizers of, of, of different leagues and, and circuits and tours will they capitulate to this? And and um, you know, they serve. They serve the athletes first and foremost, not the media. So it it was a a scary threat, but we've seen, and, and a number of people have questioned the, the worth of press conference. But simultaneously, if you're following the NBA playoffs, so much of the story has been driven by what's been said in the press conference, whether it's Kyrie Irving calling out um, you know, the, the the racism, the subtle racism, as he said in, in Boston, whether it's Clint Capella basically calling out. New York and saying we're coming there to, to end your season in your home and then backing it up?
0: They're trying to play tough. I mean, uh, push our guys around and talk shit, But But uh, we we can do that too. Uh, and we show them uh, as soon as they, they, they came back here that we, we can push guys around too.
5: Uh, we can talk as well. So what are you going to do about it? And we can get a win with it. So what you going to do about it? Oh, game four, you're coming back again. Well, it's going to happen again. We win the game. We talk, shit, we push around. So what are you going to do about it? So that's what happened. Uh, we can do it too. We can be physical, but we can win games as well. And now we're coming to your home to win this game again. Uh, so we've seen so much emerge. We've seen the value reinforced from having, from giving the athletes the platform and for having the opportunity uh, to question them and to, to see what what makes them tick. So uh, these, these two things are existing on, on the one hand, we, we're, we're seeing the, the, the access truly be put to the test like never before as it has really since the onset of the pandemic. But we also continue to see there is a value to these, even though the media doesn't prefer to do these press conferences, right Malcolm? Like our preferred thing would be if we could all line up one-on-one interviews. Uh, it's, it's this kind of unhappy compromise that's made but I think we're still continuing to see the value of access, even though it might be limited, even though it might be over Zoom, there's still some value in access to the players.
0: Well, And and if I could put on my U.S. Basketball Writers Association (laughs) hat, I mean, the the thing that isn't obvious to to fans in general is that when when it comes to major events that are organized by these different bodies, the, the access is literally negotiated down to the minute following these games, uh, specifically in the NCAA tournament, the length of the cooling off period for the losing team in each tournament game, the number of minutes that the dressing room is open. Uh, like all of those things have been negotiated decades and, for decades and decades. And so everybody has an understanding. I mean, for example, I mean, J.A. remembers the days when John Thompson was the coach at Georgetown, John the Elder, and the, the uh, relationship with the media was sometimes rocky. But we're, what was not uh, understood often enough is that if it was in the tournament handbook, John did it. I mean, he did every single thing that his program was required to do. Now, he wasn't gonna stick around another minute. And when, you know, when, when the minutes came and went and it's time to close the doors, it was everybody out. But I mean, that kind of access, the way that it's structured and negotiated is trying to transform what could easily be a chaotic situation particularly when you have sporting events that end after midnight eastern time and and create some structure and professionalism to it so that people can sit behind a desk rather than having a scrum of 40 people jammed in around them where if you're two rows deep you can't hear what anybody's saying you no know, now there are microphones and people have a chance to drink water means it's a much more professional environment for the exchange that has to take place after a game.
5: John, one thing that's interesting is that uh, this battle has been going on for for decades. And uh, Malcolm mentioned the the negotiations between the, the NCAA tournament organizers and the media. And John Wooden later said that he claimed the reason that he retired was because he was being forced to open his locker room at the NCAA tournament. And, and he says that, that the, the head of the NCAA basically said, We're going to show that John Wooden, uh, you know, who's, who's boss here. And it, it's interesting, 45 years ago, um, just like Naomi Osaka withdrew from the tournament rather than uh, have to de- fulfill these media obligations, John Wooden, he, years later said that he retired from coaching rather than deal with these media obligations. So it's been this ongoing thing. Malcolm, you remember Pat Riley in the 1980s uh, labeled the media a peripheral opponent, you know, and he said they're, they're one of these peripheral opponents that you have to deal with when you're competing for a championship. I will also say Pat Riley in his early years coaching the Lakers would send typewritten notes to... Um, to individual media members, thanking them for their coverage of the Lakers in the playoffs. So even someone who could have such a cordial relationship with the media could also label them peripheral opponents.
2: wait, and, didn't, I'm sorry, uh, Malcolm, uh, I'll let you finish that thought, but didn't Pat Riley work in radio before he moved onto the coach's bench? Yeah, 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 he was a
5: media member before yeah. he joined it. <laughs> Go ahead, and then Malcolm. he's labeling them peripheral opponents. Right. And,
0: And during a playoff series, he was a master at using off days to voice his concerns about certain calls that were or were not being made, not to the point that he would be fine, but he realized from his own experience that people are gonna show up on off days and they gotta write something. They're gonna write what people say. And so he could send messages to the league that I don't like X based on the way this is being called through those off day press conferences. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, it, it's almost like this game that everybody is playing and everybody has their self-interest. His self-interest is I'm trying to get a call our self-interest is we're trying to get through the day <laughs> and have something intelligent to write about to describe how this series is going. But one thing that I do think has been lost and, and this isn't to point a finger at any individual, but I think this current generation of athlete has a hard time relating to the days when Hardly anybody was showing up to cover the NBA, or when hardly anybody was showing up to cover women's tennis. I mean, I'm, I remember being at a men's semifinal at Forest Hills that ran long, and when CBS was supposed to go off the air, they were done. You know, people talk about the Heidi game, and and you know the Raiders beating the Jets after NBC went off the air to show Heidi. In one of the great comebacks in the history of the US Open when Manuel Orantes of Spain, you can look this up, was down two sets and five love to Guillermo Villas in the second men's semifinal in 1975, and it comes back and wins, and the entire comeback was unseen by a network audience. Well, the older generation, Martina, Chris, and obviously Billie Jean as the torchbearer early on, they remember those days when when professional tennis was a relatively new concept and didn't command the kind of attention that it does now.
2: So we, we know, gentlemen that social media is the best thing and probably the worst thing that's ever happened to our lives, right? Never before has, has the athlete, the coach, anybody been able to publish their own words in their own time, in their own place. But social media, of course, also is a place where trolls live and nasty words are spoken, especially about women in sport and especially about women of color in sport. And so Um, where do we fit into this picture uh, where we don't always have to be the filter? In fact, we're not always the filter any longer. Uh, But there's also a playground out there that is really kind of mean and nasty. I think there's a question in there, and I hope somebody picked up on it.
5: Well, also, John, that that gets to the fact that for Naomi Osaka, what is the benefit in sharing or, or being asked questions by a press corps that has very little to do with you demographically. Um, I mean, she's very unique obviously in, in uh, her mixture of, of Haitian and Japanese heritage. So there's, you're not gonna find a lot of Naomi Osaka's but young women of color, you're not gonna see very many of them in, in the press corps. So, you're being criticized, you're being questioned, and you are being filtered by a, a media group um, that has very little in common with you and probably has a great deal of difficulty in relating to your experience in a number of ways. And so, if you put yourself in her shoes or in her seat at that podium, looking out at this audience of people that really has no connection to you. Um, you could certainly see how that would ramp up the anxiety. So, in part, this this does reflect the failure of the media in in its inability to to have uh, a core, a press core that reflects in any way uh, the, the people that are competing in these sports.
0: And, and John, I think there's also a larger issue of for lack of a better description, a corporate strategy to control the narrative. Uh, I mean, I can remember, this is more than 25 years ago, one one of the finest people I've ever met in covering sports at any level was the late Mike Wadsworth, God rest his soul, who was the athletic director at Notre Dame, played for Ara season in the 60s. And we were just chatting one day and he, and he said, no offense, but this digital thing that we're developing gives us a chance to speak directly to our audience unfiltered. And, and I think that's certainly what a lot of operations at the college level and the pro level have done. Uh, The Players' Tribune has taken that to another level in terms of individual messages, but and I think this speaks directly to the question, John, if you're trying to be an informed observer getting information about this, when Deflategate was going on, are you going to read Patriots.com or are you going to read the Boston Globe? I mean, you would read, no offense, But you're gonna read patriots.com the same way other people read Pravda in the late 60s to find out, I mean, basically it's a management vehicle to express the management narrative as opposed to an independent observer who's just trying to decide what's the reality here and what is the information And context that we can pass along, and and the other thing is there's accountability here. I mean, as independent observers, we're accountable. Now, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, the devil you know. I mean, that's what I've appealed to people from athletic departments. If when I was in it in the day to day, if you have a problem with something I wrote, I mean, everybody has a boss, right? I have, I'm accountable for what I would write. And that is not anywhere near the case with much of you know, the social media landscape. Those kind of threats and what we now call trolling has existed far before the digital piece was ever invented. Athletes have gotten death threats in dormitory rooms 40, 50 years ago. After they lost a the game, the only difference now is that it has a megaphone, and the other dangerous difference. And I realize this is a, this is a whole other conversation, but the fact that in more and more places you can bet legally on this now, is going to in, it's going to increase the level of trolling, and it's going to increase the what athletes are subjected to.
5: Well, Malcolm, that aspect also gets to. The, again, the need for, um, for accountability and accessibility and what's been lost in the Naomi Osaka story, what it's overshadowed, what I thought in some ways was more critical was, uh, Joe Girardi, now the, the, uh, manager of Cleveland saying that, um, he's not going to give updates on, on the injury status of his players. And he, he thinks it puts the, the team at a competitive disadvantage, but I wonder what, Major League Baseball, which is in partnership with MGM in, you know, to provide information and, and it's the official gambling partner of MLB. Well, how does their partner feel and how do the odds makers, um, you know, that work for MGM, they're trying to set the lines, how do they feel if they're not able to get the latest information, if they're not able to get credible information about the injury status and and how is that going to hamper their ability to do their job? So, um, you know, and... As Malcolm warns, you know, this, this takes us down a whole other avenue, but I think it's really important as we're seeing the increasing um, sanctioning of gambling by, the, by these sports and these leagues, that requires increased access and information in order to level the playing field, so to speak, so that as many people have as valid information as possible when they're making the determination as to how to bet their money or how to set the lines. And so I would think that that would that would increase the need for objective um, media core that can provide as much information as possible. uh, And that can give people not only fans confident that they know what's going on, but gamblers confidence that that they're as informed as they can be before they make their bets.
2: You know, long historical context here, long before the uh, gambling was legal, the NFL started releasing injury reports for that very reason, didn't they?
0: They, they figured it out decades ago. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, and, and in fact, wait, 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 when, when, I was, when I was at Penn State, uh, Brent Musburger came and spoke to a group of students the day before a broadcast and i was teasing him at the start saying that you know can we get a you're looking live and everybody laughed but then the value of that joke was that he explained like, you know why that started right the whole premise of the live shot 15 minutes a half an hour before the game i mean the the like the secret thing about it was it was about gambling mm. And and as he described it, if it's mid to late November and the Packers are playing the Rams at Lambeau, there's no weather channel in 1971. If you're interested in making a bet and you have no idea whether the Rams are going to be able to throw the ball, you have a problem. But when you see that little 10 seconds of People in white jackets and bright sunshine in Lambeau Field. You now have information that you can use for personal gain. I mean, that's what you're looking live was all about. Yeah. And and the media would would play this silent partner role in it um, because it was good business.
2: No longer silent. Everybody's trying to get the biggest piece of that they can. Um, I'm gonna change gears here just a little bit, but it's sort of follow up on something that was talked about before. Our friend, Tim Kuhn of ESPN, and before that, the Chronicle in the Bay Area and uh, uh, writes books, he said, maybe we need to do, not maybe, we need to do a better job of putting ourselves in the athlete's shoes and we need to be more empathetic.
3: If there's a a quality and not at the, you know, not at the uh, expense of, of truth, but I think I think empathy needs to be, you know, you need to, people that are empathetic that can ask a difficult question without, without causing someone mental anguish, you know, I mean, there, there has to be, you have to be able to see the world through the other person's eyes in a lot of cases, and I think just from a, from an interviewing standpoint, from a writing standpoint, that, that that's something that, in when I talk to athletes, they feel is is somewhat missing. You know, yeah. like basically, you can be you can be critical of me, but understand that you know I'm I'm not I don't suck. I'm one of 750 people in the world that play major league baseball. You know, yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of one of the things that I think that Osaka is complaining about is that, you know, I don't ever feel, and I know you never felt offended by someone's performance, right? No. But if you go into those press conferences, sometimes you get the feeling that some people actually feel cheated if somebody lost or if whatever.
2: Tim Kuhn writes, and quite well, for ESPN. Watch the media continues. I'm John Schrader. We're chatting this time around with journalists and educators, Malcolm Moran and J.A. Adandi.
5: Empathy is certainly um, something that's necessary. at this point I just concluded my last class of the quarter This year, talking about that and and um, urging urging my students to to exercise that, Um, and and that part of that requires setting your own ego and feelings aside. And I was very supportive of Naomi Osaka last year when she announced that she was going to not play. You know, in the in the wake of that uh of the Jacob Blake shooting when we saw this this shutdown spread throughout sports and and athletes and a variety of sports simply said we can't take the field or the court right now um and she announced that she wasn't going to play in her tournament and it prompted the entire tournament to take a pause and and say we're taking this day off and then ultimately she she continued on but I supported her when she was willing to do that for her conscious and 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 because that's the way she felt and she 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 didn't feel it was appropriate. And so that was literally her not doing her job. Her not speaking to the media is an aspect of her job, Uh, but her job is to play tennis. And I realized if I could support her, putting her, you know, prioritizing her feelings over her job, uh, then I have to support her prioritizing her feelings um, above, not helping me and my brethren do our jobs, right? It would be hypocritical because now this is something that would affect my field to say, I no longer support Naomi Osaka. The, the, the irony is, is that there, there might not be a single other athlete that I would rather hear and rather have in a position to answer questions than Naomi Osaka because I think she has a tremendous amount to say at such a young age on race relations, uh, it's been fascinating to hear her talk about her challenges navigating Um, Asian culture as a person of African descent and what that's been like. Um, So as much as I want to hear from her, maybe it's in her best interest though, if she's uncomfortable talking and sharing and being subjected to questions, um, then yes, we have to put her feelings above our needs and our interests and our desires.
0: John, one of the biggest concerns overall in the industry uh, to me has been the increasing objectification of athletes, particularly young athletes. Uh, the money obviously has contributed to it in a major way. And, and as useful as data points can be, uh, I mean, that has been a contributing factor. These are not robots. These are human beings. And, and I think more and more, we're losing sight of that. I mean, I can remember I'm, it, it would be inappropriate to mention the name because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But a number of years ago, more than two decades ago, I was working on a story about a college level athlete, either a junior or senior. So it was somebody that had been around the block. It was a very flattering story so I mean, it was a very pleasant interview the athlete was very well spoken there was a nice give and take we get to the end and i thank the person for the time and i extend my hand and when we shook hands this person's hand was drenched and we were not sitting in the sun on a 90 degree day i mean we were in a climate controlled conference room on a college campus. And and I realized as pleasant and and from my point of view as easy as the conversation was, this person was scared to death. And and I think we lose sight of when you're at the business end of that level of scrutiny and, and it becomes that much more intense when now during a press conference, you're really placed in the position of performing. You've got all these cameras and lights there. I mean, it's not—it's not the old school model of three or four people around a locker just having a conversation. I mean, you're performing, and if you're at a high enough level, it may be on live network television. If ESPN is carrying a post-game thing live. Well, I mean, that can have enormous pressure, whether you're a young person navigating her way on the women's tour, or whether you're a 20-year NBA veteran. And and I think it's it's easy to lose sight of that and the importance of showing a sense of empathy, the way questions are phrased, um, to engage somebody and acknowledge their humanity.
2: Yeah, and goodness knows when we're in press conferences too, sometimes how anxious we get to make sure that we ask the question fairly and that we form that question uh, clearly. And so uh, imagine sitting there for a half an hour, 45 minutes on the other end. A couple more things I want to broach here. Um, one is we know historically that, um, that the, the organization, the ownership, views have been represented very clearly in, in sports and in sports journalism. Has that pendulum moved a bit? Are we getting more sympathetic uh, perspectives uh, from athletes than we, we have in the past?
0: You mean from athletes?
2: Yeah. Is the, is the, is the, is the view presented by sports journalism more sympathetic to athletes than it has been in the past?
0: I would say overall, no, I think it's become much more harsh. And, and, I, and I, I expect it's gonna become even more harsh at the college level now that we're on the, the uh, threshold of name, image and likeness and all the attention that's gonna be devoted toward how much money college athletes are making. And, you know, and I'm not saying that makes the system bad, I'm just saying it's going to focus more attention on the money. I still, and I realize I'm way in a minority here, but I still think there's a difference between an 18-year-old place kicker missing an extra point to lose a game and a 15-year NFL veteran missing an extra point to lose a game. But it's clear that that attitude has gone away. Uh, The gambling is only going to reinforce it. And and I I just think it's it's a very unhealthy atmosphere.
5: I would say the overall uh, environment is, is more hostile to athletes than it used to be, mainly because of, of social media and everyone now that has a, a platform and a microphone, and we've seen from their responses that that the players are are on there looking through their replies and seeing what people are saying about them. But I would say the traditional media, um, you know, in particular beat riders that cover the team, in in some ways, they might be even more um, understanding and, and generous and, and less critical of athletes because, and it gets back to access, they're trying to protect this, this what little window of access that they have. And, uh, you know, in, in order to be able to granted, to be granted that access, uh, they might be less willing to to be out there and really be critical, you know, especially I'm, I'm talking in particular, the, the, the men and women who have day-to-day access and, and or, you know, who require day-to-day access to these athletes on the beat. So uh, the problem is that I'm not sure that athletes delineate that. So they see social media as media and it's all one and the same. And those are two very different things. So athletes think, I think athletes think that media in general is more toxic toward them. But I would argue that the traditional media uh, is kinder than it's been and more sympathetic and certainly more willing to take up the cause of of pay, name, image likeness, uh, the right and freedom to transfer for college athletes. And, uh, you know, also the unfairness of of contractual situations for professional athletes. I I think, uh, you know, when there's labor disputes, for example, in professional sports, uh, I think the media is less willing to take, to just automatically default to ownership and management side uh, than it was before.
2: And one final question. This is existential and broad. Um, Where do you think sport fits sports fit into American
1: culture.
5: It's as central as it's been. Um, And in part because we have more interaction with athletes, and they do have to face the media. So, uh, a movie star doesn't have to deal with the media on a regular basis, as um, as Kevin Durant does, for example. So, one of the reasons that they're so embedded in our culture comes back to media. So, I might seem like uh, uh, you know I'm overly championing. The cause. I mean, I think if you've heard a, a common thread, it's been the value of access, but I believe that there is tremendous value in, in athletes having a healthy working relationship with the media. You don't have to be friends, but I think having a healthy working relationship with the media. And I think a number of the most successful, most prominent athletes have understood that and have always understood that. Um, going back to Muhammad Ali, uh, literally was a Dave Kindred Malcolm that Ali invited to get in bed with him once at a hotel room uh, and they were under the covers together. Uh, I mean, that's the ultimate access, but um, we, we've had that traditionally. And I think one of the reasons sports are so popular and, and that these athletes are among the biggest celebrity and have such a tremendous following has been that intersection of dealing with the media, of hearing their stories, of them ab- absolutely being humanized. And we, we hear their thoughts and, and we understand who they are as people and their likes and dislikes. And, um, and, and, and their willingness to speak out increasingly, which has been a more modern development or, or has returned to where it was in the 60s. And so a lot of the discussions that we're having about the issues facing our country are being held in the arena of sports.
0: I can remember being on a Yankee trip to Minnesota, and do you remember Kent Herbeck, I mean, the big burly first baseman for the Twins. He had done something late in a game to help the Twins win, and so I, I just go over to their clubhouse. I just need to get something real quick from him, and he comes out of the shower as I go in the door. So like, this is great. I can get in and out of here in a second. And I introduced myself and he and he says, he interrupts me politely and says, can I ask you a question? And I said, well, sure. He said, can I trust you? And I said, oh, yeah. He said, okay. Well, I, I thought so, but I just thought I'd ask. And he was kind of putting me on, but what that helped teach me is that any time, anybody in this business is introducing themselves to somebody for the first time to, to speak on the record, whether it's a small slice in a story or whether they're the subject of a 4,000 word opus, I mean, they're thinking, can I trust this person? And I think it's up to us to earn that trust so that, the, I mean, the healthiest ideal is that if there is a critical issue to be brought up, that we can bring it up in such a way that it's within a context of fairness and that we're giving the coach or the athlete or the, the administrator an opportunity to express their side of the story. You know, they're they're not trying to lose the game. And, and I think the ideal is when, when we, through our preparation through our sense of fairness, when we can earn that trust and create a healthy give and take, that's the ideal. I mean, to answer the question directly about the cultural piece, I and mean, I think in many ways, the overexposure is spoiling it and contributes to a lot of the animosity. Um, you know, people, I mean, the, the the whole anybody but Duke Mindset didn't develop until Duke was on TV 20 to 25 times a year. I mean, in the early years of the Shushevsky era at Duke, you didn't you didn't hear the anybody but Duke thing. I mean, maybe in the Raleigh Durham area you did where it was personal, but not nationwide. I mean, that wasn't until early nineties when it seemed like every other night you turn them on and you're watching Duke play somebody. So, I mean, I think the overexposure is contributing to the tension and the frayed relationships in a big way.
2: Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Any other thoughts you want to share? Or anything that uh, I haven't brought up that uh, needs to be broached?
0: I, mean, I, I just think it, it's a matter of professionalism and fairness on everybody's part. I mean, to make a healthy relationship work.
5: And I, I, in terms of health, I do think it's healthy to to rethink and reassess and how can this work better? And one thing I was thinking, if, if we're gonna think of this in, in a health term and and the, the mental welfare of, of players and dealing with media, you know, maybe a solution is we grant media sick days, so to speak. Uh, so. You know, Each player, you're, you're allowed in the course of the season a certain number of days when you don't have to do media, when you just think, you know what, I think I'd be better off if, if I took a pass. And I think that'd be a compromise. Just like press conferences are a compromise, I think we could say, all right, we would rather not be able to talk to you each and every game or match as long as we're assured that the majority of the matches, we can talk to you. And so that's the type of compromise that could be made. And, and if today you're just not feeling it, if you just don't think it would be healthy for you to, to sit and be subjected to questions, then maybe you can have this one off and we'll see you next tournament or we'll, we'll see you next game. And we'll talk to you then when you're in a better frame of mind and, and better able to have this conversation. So it, it can work. It has worked, I think, spectacularly for both sides. and let's look at solutions now that, that can enable with some compromise on both sides uh, to, in order to enable us to continue this, this relationship.
0: When, uh, when Ragab Ismail was at Notre Dame and I mean, he had his ups and downs with the media, I always found him to be delightful. And, and one day we were just chatting and, I, and we were talking about the attention and how sometimes it's uncomfortable and I said, Well, you know, you know it's this is all your fault. He said, Well, what do you mean? I said, Well, don't run so fast. <laughs> I
4: and
0: mean, if you didn't do all these remarkable things you do, you think pests like me wouldn't be bugging you all the time? So I'm like, don't run so fast, we'll go away real fast.
2: <laughs> all right, I know I said I was saying goodbye here, but a follow up to that is are both sides equally invested in this relationship?
0: No.
5: Yeah, we need them a lot more than they need us, and you know we've discussed the reasons why. Um, but I, I do think I think the fans need us to be able to serve as the conduit between them, and to be able to hold not just players but teams and leagues and and ownership, coaches to be able to hold them accountable, to be able to ask critical questions. Um, all of that. And, and again, getting back to to the gambling aspect now that is going to be increasingly a, a part of the, the, the sports landscape um, to be able to provide accurate information. So um, it, it, it's it's necessary. Athletes might not see it as necessary, but um, it, it's still a necessary relationship.
0: When, when professional athletes, for the most part, were making salaries that normal people make, I mean, they, they did need us because that could help create opportunities in the offseason that would add to their income. And, but, you know, those days obviously are long gone.
2: Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your expertise and sharing uh, your thoughts with me uh, and uh, and our students and uh, and others. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Thanks, John.
2: Jay Adandi runs the sports journalism program at Northwestern University. Malcolm Moran runs the sports journalism program at IUPUI in Indianapolis. Both are longtime and award winning sports journalists. Some final thoughts now on journalism and sports source athlete coach management relationships from ESPN's Tim Kewan. It's
3: kind of the evolution of where, we're, where things are going. And, and I say the evolution if you take out. The mental health aspect of it which i don't want to do with her because it's a big part of it but but i think that we're he- it's kind of the evolution where we're headed i mean you know you handpick who you want to talk to you get your story out through social media um you know you have if you're big enough you have nike tell your story in a commercial you know i mean that yeah. all of that is uh or you go to or you have you know, somebody, one of these production companies, do a documentary. You know, an athlete-run uh, production company that allows you to control the story from start to finish. I mean, I, I still think there's always going to be a a place for journalism. I, I do think that as long as people care about what they're watching, they're gonna they're gonna care about how it's happening and who's doing it and how. Um, it's just going to be harder, you know?
2: That's ESPN's Tim Kewan. So Naomi Osaka is out of the French Open. We don't know when she'll play again. We do know that sports and journalism and media and fans and readers, consumers care about who plays and when and what they say. Many of us care about who helps them craft that message. Sometimes it's filtered sometimes it is not. We are reminded often just how important sports is in our lives. I'm John Schrader. This is Watch the Media.